Welcome back to episode 8 of the Axe in Politics. I'm Kayla. I'm Ruri. And I'm Lucas. And we've got some national and campus news for you today. So, what's our first story, Ruri? Uh, it's Paul Ryan. He uh, announced that he's not going to be accepting the presidential nomination for the Republican Party this year, just like he announced last year that he wouldn't be accepting the party's speakership. So, we'll see how that one turns out. Ooh. Can we take Paul Ryan's word? Yeah, no, it should be very interesting. Um, I think Paul Ryan is a very much an emerging force in the Republican Party, and if there's going to be someone that's going to get them out of the mess that they're in, it's going to be him. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's more equipped to do that as speaker or as president. Truly. Um, also, the allegations against Donald Trump's campaign manager were recently dropped, so I guess that story kind of came as went as quickly as it came. Yeah, but really, in presidential news, we there's really not much. The New York primary is a big thing that's coming up. So last night, there was a debate on the Democratic side in New York. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty combative. Both of them were yelling at each other throughout. They both questioned each other's judgment. And most of the time, neither of them wanted to answer each other's questions. Yeah, no, there was this uh, really funny moment where Bernie asked... Uh, Hillary to name it, or Bernie was asked by the moderator to name a time when Hillary was influenced. Oh, I think we have the video of that. Oh, yeah, we do. Well, just let you listen to it. And hold them accountable as Senator well. Sanders, you've consistently criticized Secretary Sorry? Clinton. You've consistently criticized Secretary Clinton uh, for accepting money from Wall Street. Can you name one decision that she made as, as senator that shows that she favored banks because of the money she received? So, the obvious decision is when the greed and recklessness and illegal behavior of Wall Street brought this country into the worst economic downturn since the Great Recession, the Great Depression of the 30s, when millions of people lost their jobs and their homes and their life savings. The obvious response to that is that you got a bunch of fraudulent operators and that they have got to be broken up. That was my view way back, and I introduced legislation to do that. Now, Secretary Clinton was busy giving speeches to Goldman Sachs for $225,000 a speech. So the proper response, the proper response, in my view, is we should break them up, and that's what my legislation does. Well, as you can tell, Dana, he cannot, he cannot come up with any example because there is no example. Bernie's not the best debater, and he wasn't able to name an example. That response was a little bit weird, and Hillary Clinton's response was fine. But there actually are, is at least one example of when she probably was influenced by the big banks, and Elizabeth Warren pointed that out for us back in 2004, over 10 years ago when she spoke with Bill Moyers on PBS about uh, a bankruptcy bill during Bill Clinton's presidency. Here it is. We have that for you, too. She turned around a whole administration on the subject of bankruptcy. She got it. And then? One of the first bills that came up after she was Senator Clinton was the bankruptcy bill. Uh, This is a bill that's like a vampire. It will not die, right? There's a lot of money behind it. The bill her husband had vetoed. Her husband had vetoed it very much at her urging. And? 
she voted in favor of it. Why? As Senator Clinton, the pressures are very different. It's a well-financed industry. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the industry that gave the most money to Washington over the past few years was not the oil industry, was not pharmaceuticals. It was consumer credit products. Those are the people the credit card companies have been giving money, and they have influence. And Mrs. Clinton was one of them, a senator. She, she has taken money from the groups, and more to the point, she worries about them as a constituency. So what does this mean, I don't think that clip necessarily damns Hillary Clinton as bribed or a influenced person, but it is a very clear instance of her uh, her judgment likely being influenced in the direction that's favorable for the banks. It's true. And and a lot of people tried to sort of name Bernie as the quote-unquote winner of the debate. But, you know, I think like you said earlier, it's really hard to, to name a winner. Um, it was, like you said, pretty much a shouting contest. And, you know, both of them just said thing that, things that they've already said, I think, in their campaigns. So it was a big reiteration of what we already yeah. knew. So one... Interesting moment for me, though, towards the end of the debate, was Hillary was asked whether, if Merrick Garland was not confirmed by the Senate, whether she would replace him with perhaps a different nominee, to which she said, I don't believe in hypotheticals, I don't want to engage in this discussion, I urge the Senate to at least hear out a case for Merrick Garland and then hopefully confirm him. And then the question was turned to Bernie, to which he responds, he would definitely remove, he would definitely ask Garland to... Ask Obama to... I guess, yeah, ask Obama to ask Garland to pull back the nomination so that Bernie, if elected president, could nominate someone that he said, quote-unquote, would vow to overturn Citizens United if such a case arose for the court. And then Hillary said, well, okay, now if we're talking hypotheticals, I would say I would nominate someone who would, you know, uphold Roe v. Wade, overturn Citizens United, stuff like that. My point here is that I don't think, you know, presidential candidates should be choosing justices based on cases that they think want to be you know, upheld or overturned. Merrick Garland is perfectly qualified to be on the Supreme Court, and he would do a great service to both the country and the Constitution, regardless of party loyalty. And it may seem strange nowadays, given how partisan the Supreme Court is, but it used to be that we didn't decide justice based on how liberal they were or how conservative they were. So it did bother me a little bit. Well, uh, I think that's enough for the debate. We'll see how the New York primary goes on Tuesday. That's going to be a big one. But I think we should turn over to some campus news. And first up with that, we had the Stanford Who's Teaching Us activist group put on a couple demonstrations, and the university responded and said that they will consider those recommendations over the next coming months, and we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, the only other news there is that um, the university, after the demands came out, the university um, wrote a letter to all the students. Um, Mostly in response to the reviews. Mocking. April Fool's Day mocking article. Of who's teaching us. Yeah. And the university's letter uh, condemned the use of satire in an offensive way. Mm -hmm. And the Stanford Review wrote a response. uh, And then the... Upholding free speech. Yeah, and also mainly sort of denouncing the university for not addressing the growing controversy surrounding Gabe Knight. Um, I don't know if you guys want to... Yeah, Gabe Knight uh, is a student senator. Uh, who was running Stanford. for re-election. You know, he came out with a somewhat controversial comment, sort of anti-Semitic. During one of the current Senate meetings, he uh, there was a bill put forward about 
condemning anti-Semitism, and he questioned if one of the stipulations in the bill saying that speaking of Jews in positions of power in the media and banks, uh, if making that connection is anti-Semitic, he said we should question that automatic assumption. And to which many people said that saying that itself is anti-Semitic if you're not willing to quickly condemn those types of comments. And so he withdrew uh, his candidacy for a re-election, and now they're currently... uh, thinking of ways maybe to censure him in the Senate for making such remarks. But uh, but we had the elections for a whole new slate of senators for next year, and one of those senators that was elected but wasn't given the uh, candidacy or the Senate-ship seat, um, the Senate, seat yeah. was a fake student. Emperor Palpatine. This is actually a pretty funny story. So, yeah, so um, Emperor Palpatine has been a joke candidate for years, actually, on campus. But this year, um, Sam Wynn, I hope we're getting his last name right, um, actually filled out the paperwork for Emperor Palpatine to be on the ballot. And he did, in fact, get enough votes to... He got enough signatures to get on the ballot. Enough signatures to get on the ballot. And, and then if, he got enough votes when we had the elections last week to win a seat. He finished yes. eighth, and fifth, the top 15 are elected, so... so. Technically, he, he was in the election, but unfortunately, yeah, the specifics of the bylaws, as I understand it, um, say that the name of the senator, right? On the, the senator. Yeah, the same name on the ballot has to correspond to an actually registered undergrad. Yeah. Which makes sense. But it makes Which for Emperor a, Palpatine is not. Yeah. Probably the funniest iteration of that joke in years. Yes. That he was actually elected. But in other ASSU news, we have one last story for the day. Or... Actually, I think we've got two. Um, in the ASSU election news, John Lancaster Finley, or JLF, our current president, he put out his endorsements the day of the election, and he not well, only... he didn't call them endorsements, but he released who he was going to vote for. And But not only did he vote, say who he was voting for in terms of Senate candidates, he also put wrote his votes and explanations for why he voted each way on the ballot initiatives. And one of those was the Campus Climate Survey, uh, which is conducted by the university to see how uh, sexual assault uh, is handled or how often it occurs on campus. And there's been some controversy over last year's survey on campus. And so Matthew Cohen, a current senator, along with a handful of other people involved in that issue, have worked hard all year to get this ballot initiative put in place so that Stanford will use a different survey that defines sexual assault in some of the same ways that other universities do so that we can be more comparable to that. And uh, this ballot initiative was to pressure the university to use that survey. And JLF abstained from that, saying that he didn't see... The call was too too tough to make either way, and he intended to gather more information about the differences between the two surveys. And a lot of people found that very disappointing, considering all the hard work and effort put into making that on the ballot and And him being a public figure. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's ASU executive, he's public figure. I understand if you're very torn between the the two sides, but to gather more information, you know, I feel like to some extent it's really his job to know about these things and to know the ins and outs of all these ballot initiatives yeah. and these details and what the ACSU is doing on a regular basis. So I don't see like what more information there would be to gather. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, me too. I think I think it would have been 
fine. It probably would have been frowned upon if he had said that he was going to vote against that initiative. But I think it's more disappointing that he would use that excuse that he didn't have enough information to justify not voting at all. But in the end, it ended up passing with overwhelming support by the student body. And then, um, so now, yeah, yeah, transitioning to our last story. Kinda, so, wanna... yeah, so finally, um, the last story is something that was actually really recently presented to the Senate. Uh, you know, it was recently discussed in the Senate, and that is financial aid for Greek life. And this is a really interesting initiative. It was just featured in um, the Daily, and it's being headed up by um, Joshua Sewell, who is um, a Stanford sophomore this year. On the executive cabinet. On the executive cabinet. Um, he's very involved. And it's sort of a bill to help Greek life become more accessible and um, help anybody who wants to get involved in Greek life do so without any um, financial issues or something financial holding them back. And it's a really interesting proposal um, that is trying to draw money from a couple of different places so that, you know, financial, um, so that Greek life can become more of a diverse place um, in terms of socioeconomic status, which, you know, brings with it a lot of other types of diversity. So um, there's, it's been a little um, debated in the Senate. Um, Some senators are very overwhelming for it. Um, Some have their reservations. Um, Josh Rasool sort of addressed that in the last Senate meeting. You can again read about it in the Daily, but um, it's an initiative that looks like it's going to keep pushing forward, which um, could really help people who need, you know, need help with um, money to join Greek life really get the support that they need and feel like they can join a community without worrying about how much it costs. Yeah, and it's contentious in the Senate, but even if, I think even if it doesn't pass this time around within the Senate, the the initiative or the whole idea won't die because I think... It's an important movement for sure. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. So... I think that's about all for us today. We should give you some time to listen to our fantastic interview. It was recorded earlier this year by the Center for Ethics and Society, our partners here at the Stanford Political Journal. And it is an interview with Larissa McFarquhar, a staff writer for The New Yorker. The life of a zealous do-gooder is a kind of human sublime, by which I mean that, although there is a hard beauty in it, The word beautiful doesn't capture the ambivalence it stirs up. A beautiful object, a flower, a stream, is pleasing in a gentle way, inspiring a feeling that's like love. A sublime object, such as a mountain or a rough sea, inspires awe, but also dread. Confronting it, you see its formidable nobility, and at the same time you sense uncomfortably that you would not survive in it for long. It is this sense of sublime that I mean to apply to do-gooders. To confront such a life is to feel awe mixed with unease, a sense that you wouldn't survive in that life for long and might not want to. The do-gooder is both more and less free than other people. In the usual sense of the word, he is less free because he believes it's his duty to act in certain ways and he has to do his duty. But in an older sense, he is more free because he can control himself so his intentions aren't frustrated by weaknesses that he'd rather not have. He knows that if he makes a promise, he will keep it, that if a thing is right, he will do it, that he will not turn away because something seems too hard. Because of this, his life is what he intends it to be. Thank you so much, Larissa, for reading 
From the first pages of Strangers Drowning, grappling with impossible idealism, drastic choices, and the overpowering urge to help, which is available tomorrow. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Strangers Drowning profiles a wide array of these do-gooders that you just beautifully described. And I was surprised that they seem to have less in common than one would think, except for the fact that they have all built a life around, or perhaps for, an extreme form of altruism. So how did you find the individuals you wrote about, or were you even looking for them? Certainly I was looking for them. You have to look hard to find such people, sadly. And it's a little difficult. You can't just Google extremely moral person. And uh, if you try to Google saint, which I did at one point, all that comes up is not saint or really not saintly. Um, so the way, the method I came up with was to think about what such a person might do and find them that way. So the first idea I had was they might donate one of their kidneys to a stranger. And once you've come up with that notion, it's pretty easy to find uh, people who have done that. You go to transplant centers or you go to online fora where people in need of a kidney uh, go to find people willing to donate. And there aren't many such people, so again, it's, it's pretty easy to find them. Another thing I thought such a person might do was adopt special needs kits. And again, there aren't many such people, so I went to Spence Chapin Adoption Agency in New York City, which specializes in special needs kits. And um, I picked up a newsletter while I was there and read a column by um, Sue Badeau, who I ended up writing about. She had written a column because she's an expert in adoption and a speaker on the subject, but there was a bio at the bottom of her column that said, Sue and Hector Badeau have adopted 20 special needs children. And I thought that is an extraordinary person whom I need to meet. And then others I met completely, uh, almost, almost randomly. I went to Boston to interview somebody who had written a book about people who give away lots of money. And she said that just the day before, a young woman in her mid-twenties had stopped by the group house in which she lived and she thought I might like to meet her and she knew almost nothing about this person but just the few things she knew that she was an extremely ethical person who had resolved to give away much of what she earned interested me and I thought I should meet her and that was Julia Wise. So was there a moment of genesis for the project? Was there a moment where you were very much Googling what you would imagine these extreme do-gooders would do? Um, yes, I started, uh, started looking into this in 2010, and um, mostly I heard about people through either word of mouth or, as I say, looking at these institutions where um, like transplant centers and adoption agencies, but when I, w I wanted to write also about people who were not American because uh, I thought there were important differences in the moral cultures of different countries and while this is not uh, at all an academic book with uh, a rigorous uh, analysis of those differences, I wanted to at least gesture at that mm -hmm. fact mm -hmm. and give the reader a sense of how differently um, extremely moral people, do-gooders, are regarded in different places and different times. Um, and when I was looking in these other countries, there I had to use the internet more. Hmm. Um, I found um, 
Reverend Nomoto, the Japanese monk who counsels suicidal people, through a paper that I found online that、uh, discussed monks who engage in social work of various kinds. I found Baba Ampte online,、uh, looking through the recipients of the Magsaysay Awards,、yeah. um, which are awarded in the Philippines.、Mm-hmm. And he had received the award back in the '80s, and I read his story, and I thought he sounded extraordinary. And sadly, he and his wife had just died、um, a few years before. But I learned that their sons and their grandchildren were still working, continuing their work in the colony for leprosy patients that he founded. So it seems to me that the one function among others,、uh, among many, of strangers drowning. Is to tell an historical narrative about how continuums are created, how extremes become so, and how something maybe called the norm is established and then revoked over time. Do you think about the role of history in your writing in any particular way? Well, I certainly wanted、uh, the book to have a historical dimension because I believe that just as there is a great difference in the way that do-gooders are regarded in different places. There is also a great difference in the way they've been regarded at different times, and I wanted to make it clear that the ambivalence towards do-gooders that I do sense in our culture now、uh, has not always been there in exactly the same form. That it's the product of a weaving together of various strains, both、uh, high culture intellectual ideas and Popular therapeutic self-help ideas coming together and producing what seems to me a quite、uh, a very strong suspicion of and even hostility towards such people.、Um, so I definitely I wanted to, and as I say in the book, this is not the history. This is a history. I'm sure there are many many other strains that contributed to this sense in our culture that there's something. Suspicious, something strange, something not quite right about do-gooders.、Um, but these were the ones that I; these were the strains that I found. I traced it from thinkers, 18th-century thinkers like Adam Smith, who is very familiar to all of us here, who、uh, implanted in Western culture the idea that selfishness, acting in one's own self-interest, can be as beneficial for society as. Acting altruistically, for instance, Adam Smith's concept of the invisible hand、uh, came to mean, for、uh, Americans at least, that in the creation of a more productive, more prosperous society, a person acting in his own self-interest could be as helpful as an altruist. And Adam Smith, mind you, was a moral philosopher, so. Uh, I don't think he would have recognized the uses to which his idea has been have, have the uses to which his idea have been put, but it certainly has had an enormous effect on how people think about altruism. Similarly, Darwin.、Um, Darwin believed strongly in the existence of altruism. He believed that、uh, groups of people that cooperated would defeat groups that did not cooperate, and therefore altruism had a Readily explainable place in human life, but many of the people who followed Darwin, who believed in his account of evolution, found this unconvincing. And it was only recently that group selection was revived as an explanation of altruism. For most of the 20th century,、mm-hmm. 
it was dismissed and altruism was felt to be a form of egotism in disguise. Mm -hmm. We want to turn our attention to one specific profile, and that's uh, Baba's story. We'd love if you would just read the very first paragraph of Baba, of his chapter. This is the story of a man who founded a leper colony in a wilderness in the center of India, and who passed on this flourishing and celebrated enterprise to his children and their children, as another man might a shipping business or a newspaper. The man had two sons. The younger started a clinic in a remote jungle and won fame and prizes like his father. The elder built on his father's work, but his achievements were not recognized. The story began with a chance encounter one night in the rain that caused the man to change the course of his life, and everything that happened for the generations that followed was due to that decision. But things could so easily have been different. One can imagine this man, in a different place and time, pursuing any number of ambitions with equal passion and recklessness. He might have been Henry Ford, he might have been Napoleon. If there are such things as congenital saints, he was not one of them. Baba's story for me, and particularly that paragraph, because you talk about him as this reckless character and you have this comparison with him being potentially Henry Ford, um, makes me think of this overpowering urge to help as having this sort of synonymous and potentially um, mirrored idea, which is this um, relentless drive of the entrepreneur. So as someone who does profiling, who does, who writes about particular types of people or writes about particular ways of typecasting people, do you see any similarity between the extreme do-gooder and this um, industrious entrepreneur? Absolutely, absolutely. I think they have something in common. Baba in particular was an empire builder who had the relentless drive and the aspiration to be constantly growing and founding new things that um, is shared by the entrepreneur. Um, but I think everyone in my book has a willingness to neglect pleasure, ease, family life for the sake of their cause. That's what makes them so extraordinary, um, that they're willing to put aside the things that are essential for most of us. And entrepreneurs, uh, when thinks of entrepreneurs as doing something similar, they, in order to bring their, their vision to fruition, they also neglect their home life. They don't go out for fun so much. They neglect their family perhaps, all they want to do is work and work and work to achieve the success, uh, to make their company a success. And so I think this obsessive and narrow-minded, single-minded attention to one cause is something they have in common. But in this book I did want to separate um, the entrepreneurial skill from the moral drive because most moral, most moral leaders who come to public attention do so because they have a kind of entrepreneurial genius in addition to their moral drive. They found things. They start institutions that last. So even someone like Mother Teresa, whom one would think of as almost the opposite of an entrepreneur, in fact, has something of that same ability because she founded an institution that has endured and achieved great success and changed the way people thought about dying 
and poverty in India, and she became very well known, and she was an entrepreneur of, certs, mm -hmm. of sorts. Mm -hmm. Well, Baba is only one profile included in the book, and the way that your book is structured uh, is more or less into chapters of people like Baba, whether they're individuals or couples or families, and then also sections that examine more deeply social issues and social histories um, that bubble to the surface from these particular profiles. Uh, there was a recent review in the New York Times by Dwight Gardner, an absolutely glowing review, and he specifically mentions the number of profiles in the book that I thought was extremely interesting. Interesting, He says, these profiles work because they're as taut and as, as evocative as parables. Also, there are not too many. They don't swamp the inquisitive tone of her broader intellectual narrative. Like Gardner, I'm also struck by this relationship between two types of enterprises in the same book. And for me, uh, one effect of the way in which these two parables, the parable and the intellectual narrative, work together is to heighten the presence of you as the narrator, as almost this palpable voice. And at the same time, we learn nothing about you in the course of the book. So I'm wondering, do you think of the structure in the book and how you wrote each section in similar ways as the profile or the parable written in one way and then the intellectual inquiry written into another? I did think of them as different. Um, when I was first starting to write the book, I worried that the profiles might sound too different from one another and that the voice would not be unified enough for a book because when I, I write profiles for the New Yorker magazine, I aspire to write them so that it feels to the reader that there's very little between them and the subject I'm writing about. I want it to feel unmediated. I don't want me, I don't want me to get in the way of the reader's access to the subject's mind. And what that result, and, and that, in order to do that, I find myself writing in the voice of the person I'm writing about. I want it almost to sound as though they are writing the piece rather than me. And that's fine for a magazine because each piece you write is its own thing. And if you are adopting a very different tone or way of writing in each one, it doesn't matter. But I worried that in a book that might not work. Um, so I tried to hold that back to some extent and make the voice in the profile chapters a little more unified than I might usually do. Um, and in the essayistic chapters, on the other hand, that's, that's me. So they needed to be one voice, and I tried very hard to make that the case. And in the history chapters, I was trying to make them interesting. I didn't want them to get bogged down in, in a lot of theories uh, that people might find um, slow going, so I tried to make them as lively as possible. Is there something about the book format that you thought was particularly uh, productive for the stories you're trying to tell, as opposed to individual pieces that would be published uh, in at different times? Well, I did want to group them together because I thought it was important to make it clear that there are very, very different kinds of people who are do-gooders. I think all of us with that term have a sense of what it means. We have a cliche in our minds. Um, and there are certain things in common probably with our cliches, such as uh, 
the Mrs. Jellyby cliche that uh, the do-gooder is somebody who is so concerned with helping out some strangers that they have no interest or neglect their actual families. Um, but that said, I do think that there are many, many, many different types of um, people who push themselves morally and many different kinds of principles that can be pushed to an extreme point. And I wanted to make that clear. I wanted to make it clear that there are different kinds of people, that they exist in different places, and they exist in different times, and they do very different things with their moral will. And in order to do that, it was necessary that they exist together, that they not be different pieces scattered about. They needed to be read next to each other and contrasted. So you said that you didn't want there to be, air, there to be any mediation between um, the people that you're writing about, their stories, and then the reader who are reading their stories. So how do you cultivate this level of trust and transparency with the people that you're writing about to result in a book that's so comfortable and fluid and can be written in such a way where the prose are transformative and myself and the New York Times are completely literally transformed our reading it. How do you call, how do you start with a beginning relationship between yourself and a person, go from there, cultivate something real, and then have something so unmediated seemingly come out of it? Well, it probably helps that I'm approaching these people, telling them, I am writing a book about extraordinarily moral people. <laughs> it's not a very hostile approach. So <laughs> you can imagine... From the get-go, there's a certain amount of trust established because those are the parameters. But also, I just, I think that just sheer interest is the primary means for establishing trust between you and another person. I mean, when I go to interview these people, I am absolutely riveted by everything they say. And hopefully, if I do my job right, the interviewing process is as interesting for them as it is for me because often we'll be talking about decisions that they made and paths that they took in their lives that they haven't thought about for years, sometimes decades, and they may never have really thought about them uh, in stark terms such as, why did I do this and not the other thing? How did I get here? Why did I come to believe in these principles. Now, mind you, the people I'm writing about in this book are unusually self-conscious, calculating, aware people who usually do think about their lives in very conscious, intellectual ways. Um, there aren't that many decisions that they've made that they made just uh, by happenstance in the way that so many of us live our lives. One of the extraordinary things about these people is that there is so little left to chance that they think so carefully about every single thing that they do. But even so, it can be interesting and even moving for them to think about their lives in retrospect or, in the case of the younger people I wrote about, as they're happening, and to try and make sense of what's happened to them and what they've chosen to do. What is ethical journalism in your view? Ethical journalism is basically honesty, uh, being completely honest and candid with your subjects about what, um, what you're up to. And 
I think very different rules apply to public figures and private people. Um, you want you obviously have to be honest with everybody, but um, with public figures who've been interviewed many times, you can assume a certain degree of knowledge on their part. They're used to being interviewed. They know what it's like to be written about. And so if they decide to tell you something um, about their life, you can pretty much assume that they intend for that to be published. You don't have to worry that they will regret it later. Whereas with a private person who's never been interviewed, never been written about, they may not realize how shocking it may be for something private to appear in a public place. And so in the case of private people, I often will tell them, if you wake up at two in the morning horrified that you told me something, you can take it back. I, this is not a confrontational interview. If you, I don't want you to uh, be appalled by regret or think afterwards that you may have hurt somebody or for any reason regret telling me what you did. So I'm much more inclined to um, let people take back anything. So with a private person, I will give them leeway to take something back that they've said to me. And sometimes I will even um, protectively censor them on their behalf. They may feel that they are comfortable saying this or that about themselves. And afterwards, I will think, you know what? That is too private. It's too, um, it's too much. I'm not going to put that in not only because I think this person might regret it, but because it doesn't belong in this story. So what are you writing now? One of the categories of people that I thought I might write about for this book, but didn't end up doing so, was um, a hospice nurse. I wanted to know what drove somebody to that work. And having finished the book, I decided to, to, to write about that anyway, because I am very, very fascinated by why someone would choose that work. Because after all, in my notion of nursing, one of the gratifications of that career would be the feeling that you were helping someone get better. You were helping to cure someone. Mm -hmm. And obviously a hospice nurse doesn't have that gratification. But in talking at length with a very wonderful nurse named Heather Meyerend in New York, in, New York, in Brooklyn, uh, about her work, I'm discovering that actually hospice nursing has all kinds of rewards that I never even imagined. Um, for one thing, it's a very different way of taking care of somebody. When you're a nurse in a hospital, you are constantly on the move. You are doing one task after another, and you begin to think in terms of tasks rather than in terms of people, because you have to. You are in such a rush, you are constantly filling in paper paperwork on the computer, you are, you are administering an IV, you are, you are giving med meds, you are checking in on somebody who has called you. You don't have time to sit down and be with someone or get to know them. Whereas a hospice nurse like Heather will go to someone's home and she will typically spend an hour with them uh, once a week. And what she has to do there as a nurse does not take an hour. She takes their blood pressure. She will check their feet for swelling. She will check their urine, perhaps. She will uh, ask them if they 
have experienced trouble sleeping, trouble eating, if they have any pain, that's a few minutes. It's really, it doesn't take much longer than it's just taken me to tell you about it. But she spends an hour with every patient, and a lot of that is just being with them and being a different kind of nurse. The other day, I went with her to visit a woman who was 105 years old. And I'd been to see her once before, and the first visit, she was asleep. Uh, she was just completely not there. Her head was sunk on her chest, and she didn't seem to know that any of us were in the room. The second time we got there, and she had been this way for three or four months, Heather said. The second time we got there, she had woken up and she started singing. She was singing the blues. She was singing Old Man River. She was singing Summertime. And it was the most miraculous thing to see. And I realized this is the kind of thing Heather sees, not all the time, but quite often. And it's an extraordinary thing that regular nurses don't get to see. Well, I can't wait to read it. Larissa, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with the rest of the book tour. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. <laughs>